Sorry, I heard you. I heard you tap, tap, tapping away. I figured you were ready. Yes, I'm here. I'm ready. That's, that's what I thought. Whether that Thorpe guy will wake up in time for the show, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> hey, everybody, I'm Kyle. <laughs> Welcome back to Make Me Smart. That's the way to do it, late. Kyle. Make fun of the engineer and then be late. Make Me Smart is the podcast. If I could just remember to start talking on time. Oh, my God. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Kimberly Adams. Thank you for joining us today on this election day. So the midterms are here after unbelievably long run-up and ads and ads and more ads mm-hmm. and ads and then some ads. Um, and so while there is a big focus on who's going to get control of Congress, the House, the Senate, and maybe even in your local elections, so who's going to tr- control your state legislature or your city council or all the other types of voting that you can do today or maybe have already done in early voting. One of the things that we've been kind of stuck on here at Make Me Smart is school board races, because with all this money that's being spent on elections, something like $16.7 billion, according to the group open secret. But, you know, some of the races that really caught our attention this year were school board races. Voters are taking their grievances over public schools to the ballot box this midterm cycle. Parents who are frustrated by how schools handle the pandemic are now running for these boards. Candidates raising ideological issues with some accusing schools of indoctrinating children with political beliefs. 19 of 30 nonpartisan school board candidates, backed by Governor Ron DeSantis, won. So these are usually, if you remember, even just a couple of years ago, pretty low-key races, right? Usually nonpartisan voter turnout is in the 5 to 10% range, so really low. This election cycle, though, a lot more interest, a lot more money involved in those local school board races. Outside groups on both the right and the left plowing money into these races. And some of these fights got really intense in the weeks leading up to Election Day. Here's an October meeting out of Dearborn, Michigan. So the yelling you're hearing there is vote them out. Parents at that meeting were apparently upset over LGBTQ-themed books. So why is it that some candidates for school board races Mm -hmm. are raising thousands of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars to campaign for these seats. And is that even allowed? I mean, how many mailers and yard signs can you possibly (laughs) send for your average school board candidate to need to win in 2022? And we were really curious about how that's changed over previous years. And we thought, you know, somebody's got to be tracking this stuff, right, at the school Mm. board level. But it turns out that's really, really hard because there are a boatload, is a boatload, I suppose, of of school board school districts in this country, 14,000 of them. Uh, nationwide. And there's not a whole lot of research on campaign finance and school board elections. So we decided to talk to one person who at least has done some research into the money going into school board races, Professor Rebecca Jacobson. She is a professor of education policy at Michigan State University, and she also co-authored the book Outside Money in School Board Elections, the Nationalization of Education Politics. Professor Jacobson, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So as far as we could tell, there isn't a ton of research out there on campaign finance in these local school board elections. Does that surprise you? 
No, in fact, I often joke with my graduate students that when I first started writing about school boards about a decade ago, everybody thought I was a little crazy and no one was very interested. And yet here we are. Yeah, I mean, school boards are, look, I, I live in a small town in, in you know, the foothills of, of Southern California, and the school board race is deeply, deeply contentious. They have become a real focal point and uh, something that surprised me and my colleagues when we started working on this, uh, when we noticed around about 2012 that all of a sudden there were these news reports of uh, large donations and record spending coming into school board elections. And that really caught our interest and got us wondering why, after all this time of criticizing school boards and many people wishing they would simply go away, um, were we reinvesting in them? So this has been going on for a while then. You're talking about a decade ago. What's happening now that it's getting so much more attention? When we first started looking, the issues were different. We were noticing um, primarily individuals and organizations that were more aligned with Democrats and with particular policy priorities like expanding school choice, um, reforming teacher tenure, or high-stakes accountability and testing for students. That certainly has changed now. The players are different and the issues are different, but I think um, many of the strategies are the same. And I think with adding into it uh, social media and polarization, it's really made for a really contentious season on school board elections. Why then is the money so hard to track? Local elections in general are not really covered very well. And oftentimes trying to dig through the records um, is quite a feat. We actually found out when we started doing this work, we literally had to send somebody to one of our sites to hand photocopy records Hmm. because they just weren't even digitized at that point. I think we've gotten better now, but it's still really hard to find local election data. And there's no one place to go. You have to go from site to site to site, even online, uh, to pull it. And they report differently. The rules are different. And so trying to put it together to get the big picture is a is really uh, quite a feat. So based on what you have been able to pull together, um, how much money does the average school board candidate spend on running for these offices and, and what do they spend it on? Sure. Well, some of it depends on the size of the school district. Certainly in larger school districts, especially high profile ones like Los Angeles, Denver, Um, those elections can be extremely expensive. In fact, LA is sort of in a a category unto itself. Mm -hmm. Um, But when the best data we have go back to 2010, and at that time in a a survey, most school board members, the overwhelming majority said that they were spending less than $1,000. So nearly Hmm. three quarters of the school board members said that they were spending this very small amount. And that the vast majority of that money, over half, was coming from their own pockets. And then the next largest amount was coming from friends and family. So this is really different than what we're seeing in some of these places today, where not only do we have much larger donations from individuals, but we have uh, independent expenditure committees. Now there's a nonprofit called Moms for Liberty mobilizing for the midterms, and they have grown big time. 
PACs that are donating. A federal super PAC called the 1776 Project is supporting five candidates for Bentonville School Board, saying voting for them is voting for the, quote, pro-parent ticket. Well-organized organizations donating. The conservative 1776 PAC has endorsed over 100 candidates nationwide and raised over $2 million, according to... Uh, that are typically associated with the right, with Republicans, who are talking more about what we call culture war issues. So these elections can look really different than they did even just a few years ago. Do you think that's sustainable? I mean, it can't possibly be that, and I don't want to make my town the 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 harbinger here, but a friend of mine ran for school board, spent $18,000. He was like raising money and doing the whole deal. And that seems just not sustainable if we want, you know, a citizen democracy here. Yeah, we spoke to many school board candidates that had been in these races where outside money became an issue, and many of them felt like it would actually be cheaper for them to run for state office than it would be to run for their local school board office. (laughs) And unfortunately for those candidates that couldn't tap into those large donor networks, it was really difficult for them to participate, to get their message out, to get their policy ideas discussed, uh, and to really gain any visibility in the election even. You know, and that reminds me of what we were talking about on, on another show here on Make Me Smart, where, you know, in House and Senate races, the people who raise the most money tend to win. And it seems like that's filtering down to the school board races as well. How much do you think, if you can ballpark it, do you think candidates have been spending this round in school boards? It's really hard to say how much they're spending this round, especially since data are not all in, right? Campaign filing reports are not in. Um, but even 18000 compared to some of the elections we looked at is, is pretty small amounts of money. And I think one of the things that happens when, when money does come into the election is that the set of issues changes. Sometimes the hmm. issue of money itself becomes the focus rather than actual policy issues related to teaching and learning and what Mm. kids need in order to be successful. It becomes about who's getting money from whom, how much, where's it coming from. Um, And then the other thing is that it shifts the conversation towards the issues that donors care about. Um, And so you can crowd out some of the more local issues when national donors especially are pushing the agenda of national issues. The parental rights in education law, which critics have dubbed Don't Say Gay, officially takes effect in a matter of weeks. Critical race theory has become a political flashpoint across the country. The new culture war raging across America is over books. And I think that's what we're seeing now, too, when we've got many more conversations about gender, sexual orientation, bathrooms, critical race theory. These aren't necessarily the issues that were top of the mind for local citizens, local parents. But yet that's dominated the conversation and unfortunately maybe missing critical issues that the community really needs addressed. You know, the language you're using with PACs and outside money and getting in front of donors and campaign managers are terms that are so often used when we're talking about these national and federal or even state level elections. But in all of those elections, you have clear rules and limits for how much individuals and political action committee committees and even businesses can donate. 
Do similar rules exist for these school board candidates? Yes. So just like all other elections, school board candidates have to follow uh, state finance rules, but those rules vary by state. And oftentimes the local amount is the same as the state amount or is relatively the same. Like when we were looking in L.A., there was a limit of $1,000 directly to the candidate, but there was unlimited amount to the independent expenditure. Um, in other places like Denver, the reverse was true. There were limits on how much a donor could give to an independent expenditure committee, but not on how much directly to the candidate. Yeah. And then in other places like Michigan, it varies by how large the community is. So the larger the community, um, the higher the limit that can go. But Still, even there, the individual limit um, may be $1,000, but to the independent expenditure committee, it's $10,000. So it's 10 times as much. Hmm. And so it gets it, it's a lot of money very quickly. But how do these newer groups who've stepped in maybe compare to the traditional groups that have had big roles in local school board races, like teachers unions? That's a great question. So individuals are just one part of the the donation ecosystem. Certainly unions are the, the, the organization that most people think about when they think about education. And unions have been active and have been active donors for quite some time. Uh, and in the research that we did, unions were the largest organizational donor, meaning they they gave the most number of donations, um, but actually gave less in terms of total amount of money than some of the reform groups that we were looking at. Was it teachers unions given that money? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Teachers yeah. unions. And they were about 35% of the contributions, but about 25% of the money. So let me take the flip side of the coin. I mean, the Supreme Court says, in essence, uh, uh, money spent on politics is speech and, and we should let people do this. What's the problem? So I think there's there's uh, you know both good and bad that money can bring. We did find when we were looking from 2009 to 2014 that oftentimes nobody was paying attention to school board elections. We literally found zero news coverage um, in places like Indianapolis and New Orleans before outside money came in. And even in LA, which is a you know pretty high profile election, um, there was just a small handful before 2013 when outside money became an issue. And so money did bring attention. And in a democracy, we want people to be paying attention. We want voters to be informed. And if there's no news coverage, I don't know how you could possibly keep up with it. So I think that that part is good. The downside, as you mentioned earlier, is it changes who can run. So unless you can tap into these donor networks and be able to uh, have money to spend on a campaign manager who can then further contact those networks and get you in front of donors and get you in front of uh, the right people, it's it's really hard to participate. And school boards used to be a place where the majority of uh, candidates talked about running for civic duty, not for anything other than they just wanted to see their schools be really strong and good for kids. And that's probably what's at stake here, in my opinion. 
do we need some more guardrails on school board races? Does there need to be Mm -hmm. sort of campaign finance reform for school board races? I think that certainly I would be in favor of campaign finance generally, not just for school board elections. I think that the amount of money involved is, is just crazy and does have an impact. And so if we really want to change things, I would like to see campaign finance reform for school boards and many other kinds of elections. But I also think we need just local coverage brought back. We've lost a lot of our local news on our local coverage, and we don't have folks in many places to even be paying attention and giving voice to a wide range. And when you don't have those kinds of universal opportunities where, you know, the newspaper talks to every candidate and has them fill out a form, then it really does become what many of the candidates use the term was the battle of the mailbox. Who can get their name you know, to show up in the mailbox the most times. And that comes down to money rather than ideas. So this is really a conversation about the civic space, right? About yes. democracy. And, and if action. we don't demonstrate that for our kids at school board meetings, where else are they going to learn it? This is the closest thing they are going to be able to get to really seeing up close democracy happening. Um, and so maybe we should start bringing our kids to school board meetings. Maybe that would help some of us think about what are we really teaching our kids and what are they seeing us do? Rebecca Jacobson, professor of education policy at Michigan State University. She's also co-author of the book, Outside Money in School Board Elections, The Nationalization of Education Politics. Thanks so much. That was super interesting. Thanks so much for having me. So now it's time to hear from you, our listeners. We want to know what school board elections look like in your community. I know they don't always line up exactly with the sort of uh, congressional or midterm or presidential elections. They may be all over the place. But have you ever run for your school board? What was that like? Are you a parent that's maybe concerned about your local school board? We'd love to hear your thoughts on this and what Professor Jacobson had to say. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART or email us at makemesmart at marketplace.org and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, and now time for our news fix. Mine is more election day-y, so I will go first. Yes. Uh, Which is... 
First of all, uh, there's a lot of concerns about potential voter intimidation at the polls today. So if by chance you are hearing this and you are still in line to vote or waiting to vote or concerned about what is happening to your ballot, uh, there is a website that you can go to that actually has a lot of resources for that. There's a hotline from Election Protection. It's Their website is 866hourvote.org, and they have a hotline. They can do text messages. They have a lot of information mm. about individual states. Um, and this is from the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law that uh, is running this whole thing. And in sort of evidence that there is a lot of concern about voter intimidation at the polls this year, the Washington Post has this story about the Justice Department dispatching Election Day monitors to 64 jurisdictions across the country, including some of those who had uh, challenges to the vote after the 2020 election All of this to say we are not going to know the answer to what happened on Election Day today or tomorrow, probably. It's going to take a little bit, and I would encourage everybody to be patient and to avoid jumping to conclusions and just to um, let the process play out and uh, cross your fingers for all the civil servants out there doing their best to make this thing work. I read an article in the L.A. Times, I think, yesterday. California average, on average, California certifies its elections uh, around Thanksgiving. So that's like three weeks, you know, and, and, you know, maybe we're notoriously slow. I don't know. And it's important to bear in mind that a lot of legislatures don't let states and election officials start counting things. So until, Mm -hmm. you know, actually Election Day. So anyway, just hold your horses because it's coming. It's just going to take a while. There's a zillion and there's going to be lawsuits. Oh, like, God. Oh, there are going to be lawsuits yeah. there already are. and challenges. Already are. Already and all. Yeah, this is true. Already okay. All right. What's yours? Okay. So mine's a little uh, definitely non-election-y, a little bit uh, geeky, but it goes along with my philosophy that while cryptocurrencies are not money today in a, in a useful, tangible sense, they are certainly the future of money. There's a big deal in crypto world. A company called Binance, which was originally founded in China by a Chinese-Canadian Chinese uh, businessman and is now the biggest cryptocurrency exchange on the planet, is going to buy one of its uh, smaller, by definition, but uh, still significant competitors called um, FTX. And if you know the name, Sam Bankman-Fried, um, that's his company. He's a like a wonderkind crypto dude who's like a billionaire at the age of not very old. Um, anyway, it's consolidation in that space. And that's important because while there isn't necessarily a formal banking system in crypto, and while, yes, it's all about disintermediation, crypto exchanges are going to have a whole lot of power when cryptocurrencies are actually useful money. And so we should be on our toes for consolidation like this. And that's what's happening. Binance, the biggest company in crypto uh, exchange land, is buying a smaller competitor and so is getting more powerful. And we should just be aware of that. That's one of those news you can use things, I think. But you can't really use it yet. Use it later. I'm very curious with this deal. Yes. Where this sits in the whole antitrust industry consolidation debate. Because, like, they don't even have regulation of crypto as an industry in a meaningful way. And so one could argue if these were sort of traditional banks or – even in you know investment firms, you could say that's a whole lot of consolidation yeah. in one sector of the economy, but without the existing regulatory framework for what that section of the economy even looks like, 
I imagine regulators would have a really hard time, uh, you know, reining it in if they wanted to. It's worse than that. We cannot even agree. That is to say the Congress of the United States cannot even agree which government agency should be regulating crypto. Should it be the Securities and Exchange Commission because crypto is a security or should it be the Commodities Futures Trading Commission because I don't know what the rationale is there. But but we can't even agree on who's going to do it, let alone writing the rules, you know. All right. That is it for our news fix. Let's move on to the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. All right. First up, we have uh, Janet from my side of the country. Mm -hmm. Hi, this is Janet from Springfield, Virginia. And uh, I just wanted to note for Kai and Kimberly, who are fellow space geeks, Mm -hmm. that the night of the election is a lunar eclipse in the D.C. area, at least, a full lunar eclipse. We're going to have a blood moon, which is a creepy (laughs) pinky red moon on election night. Somehow is the universe telling us something? Anyway, oh, it's partially a makes me smile. <laughs> love you guys. Take care. Bye. Oh, I love you too, Janet. Thanks. I actually dragged myself out of bed at five o'clock wow. this morning and went up to my building's rooftop and with cool? my binoculars, it was really cool. Yeah, I looked at the I eclipse bet. and it was uh red and, and it lunar eclipses are just really cool, cool. looking. If you've never seen one, you know, try to try to find one. And it definitely did have that red tinge to it. Um, it was 5 a.m. I didn't stay out too long, but I definitely saw it. <laughs> wait, wait, did, you, did you go back to bed after hauling yourself up to the roof? I did. It oh, was cold man. and my bed was very warm. Oh, there you go. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so, that's fair. But you're up at 5 a.m. like all I, the time. I am, except ex- West Coast. It's, I know, except it was 2 o'clock in the morning here, uh, eclipse yeah. time. And also it's been cloudy and pouring rain here in LA all day. So there were, there was no, it was, it was crystal clear here in DC. The stars were beautiful and it was, it was really nice. It was very quiet and everything. I'm going to go back up again tonight and look at the full moon. So yes, Janet, I'm with you. And, uh, you know, it was really awesome. Very cool. All right. Before we go, uh, we leave you as we always do with this week's answer to the make me smart question. What is something you thought you knew, but later found out you were wrong about this week, the answer comes from Jordan Ellenberg, mathematician, also author. The book is called How Not to Be Wrong. Here you go. I used to think everybody would love math the way I do if they understood it the way I do. <laughs> that was my goal as Sorry. a teacher. Now I think math is kind of like exercise. There are people who find a way of exercising that they truly love. Could be anything. You know those people, the triathlon people, the hockey people, the rock climbing people. There are probably, I don't know, badminton people. But for most of us, Exercise is something we do even though we don't love it. We do it because we value it, because it's intrinsically worthwhile. But teaching students that math is worthwhile, that I can do. And I think once I realized that, it changed the way I think a lot about a lot of things. We talk a lot about do what you love, but that's a lot of pressure. Let's go easy on ourselves and settle for do what you think is worth doing. A freaking men. Amen. I like that. Amen. Do what you think is worth yep. doing. Yep. Because that, that's its own kind of joy yeah. when you feel like 
what you're doing is worthwhile. Absolutely. That's really cool. Absolutely. All right. So look, don't forget to send us your answer to the Make Me Smart question. You can leave us a voicemail at 508-827-6278, 508-U-B-S-M-A-R-T. Those are all letters uh, is how you can uh, sort of spell that on your phone. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you wanted to. Make Me Smart is produced by Marissa Cabrera and Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter, and today's program was engineered by Charlton Thorpe with mixing by Gary O'Keefe. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Bridget Bonner. She's off doing a million bazillion right now. Diantha Parker was the editor on this episode. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. You, go. you know what's interesting is if you go to other countries and uh, that have different characters yeah. on your keypad for your cell phones, you have all these different characters oh, for letters that's for so when funny. you dial, yeah. and and it it looks real interesting. I of have course. one uh, from when I lived in Egypt that has uh, the Arabic ones. Yeah, and no, that's cool. Pretty fascinating. That's pretty funny, huh? John Stewart is back in the host chair at the Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on the Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcast.